I've never really embraced the word religion. I've never thought of myself as a religious person. I grew up in a household where we were very involved in church. We went to church at least twice a week. We were involved in lots of ministries and lots of mission work. But it was never taught to me that our motivation was our religion. Our motivation was our faith in God. Our motivation was our relationship with God and with the world. Religion was for people, I thought, who sort of went through practices and did things that didn't really help anybody. I thought that's what religion was. And I remember when I was in my first call after seminary, I was on the north shore of Long Island, and one of my confirmation students introduced me to his friend, and he said, this is Nathan. He's very religious. (laughs) And I thought, oh no, my life's gone totally wrong. Am I religious now? And I think we were just dealing with a definition of terms. I think what he was trying to communicate to his friend is that I was deeply motivated by faith. I hope that's what he meant. The Bible does use the word religion. James chapter 1 talks about true religion, how it is to care for the orphan and the widow and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Isaiah 58 also teaches us in very clear terms about religion. It presents, basically, that there are two types of religion. There is false religion, and there is true religion. There is false piety, and there is true righteousness. And it's quite clearly laid out in verse 1. God says to Isaiah, lift up your voice like a trumpet. I think God wants us to hear this truth as clearly as we would hear the sound of the blast of a trumpet, that there are basically two kinds of religion. There is false religion, and there is true religion. And what Isaiah 58 teaches us about false religion is that it is pointless. False piety is pointless. It does not achieve what it sets out to achieve. Let's read about it. Let's read about this false religion, beginning in verse 2. I've already mentioned verse 1. God seems a bit surprised when he's thinking about his people who are behaving with some false piety, some false religion. He says this, My people seek me daily. They delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. You ever heard somebody say, as if? This is God's way of saying that. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. God's a bit surprised that his people think they're getting his attention. They think they're pleasing him. When when he looks at them, he sees false piety. Here's what they say. This next little phrase here in verse 3 is a quotation that God is saying his people say to him. Here's what they say. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Now let me just explain what's going on here before we go any further. It seems from the last two verses of the chapter, which we did not read, that's a little bit of context there, the people of God had added something to the law. God had declared a law about the Sabbath, and it had quite explicit instructions of what the Sabbath should be like, but it appears that God's people had added a fast to the Sabbath. 
they decided to abstain from food and drink on the Sabbath. And here they are saying, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Aren't you pleased with us, God? We've added something to your law. We're doing something. We're doing a ritual, a practice on the Sabbath. Why aren't you paying attention, they're saying. But look what he responds to them with. Halfway through verse 3, God says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. In other words, you thought you were pleasing me. You seek your own pleasure. Furthermore, you oppress all your workers. It seems that they had taken the day off. It's the Sabbath. They had abstained from their daily bread, but they made the workers of their households continue to work for them. God is not pleased. And he continues saying, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. God here is rightly describing hungry people. (laughs) Halfway through their day or so on the Sabbath, they're abstaining from food. They think they're pleasing God. They're just getting grumpy. You fast only to quarrel and to fight. God's looking at them saying, I didn't ask you to do this. Your fast, this ritual you're going through, is pointless. It's not achieving the goal you set out to do. If you imagine them having now a a loaf of bread before them, and they think to themselves, I know what will please God if I don't eat it. But God is showing them, no, if you add this fast, the bread will go stale, and you will go hungry. This false piety, this false religion is pointless. It does not achieve what it sets out to achieve. And then furthermore, it says this, halfway through verse 4, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. It's not getting my attention. God says, this doesn't please me. Then he says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Can't you just picture them here? Looking so hungry. Looking so holy. <laughs> saying, God, why aren't you pleased with us? And God is saying to them, I didn't ask you to do this. Thank you, but... Your false religion, your false piety is pointless. Now, we've been looking all summer at Isaiah, and we've been asking this question, how are we implicated in the story? Well, thank God we have nothing in common with these people. (laughs) Now, obviously, you might be sitting there thinking, hey, I eat a lot on Sundays, so I'm good with God. But I think the basic thinking error that they made is one that we all can make sometimes. You see, they wanted to do religion on their own terms. They knew what the law said. They knew what God had asked of them. But they added this fast on the Sabbath that God never asked them to do. They could control the fast more easily. That's something they could think through and control and manipulate, thinking that that would please God. They were trying to do religion on their own terms. They had not submitted totally to the law of God. They were not doing true religion. They were doing false religion, which was pointless. So what is true religion? That should be our next question. What is true religion? Well, 
It's spelled out for us in the remaining verses, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. False religion is pointless, but true religion, according to the Bible, has purpose, brings pleasure, and has a promise. True religion has purpose, brings pleasure, and carries with it a promise. Let's look at it together. True religion has purpose. Verses 6 and 7, God gets real. He says to his people, is this not the fast that I choose? Now pay attention. You're not doing what I asked you to do. You're doing this extra thing, but it's pointless. Is this not the fast? You want to fast in a way that I choose? Here's what God says. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now that last phrase is a little bit hard to understand, so let me explain. Not to hide yourself from your own flesh. What that means is do not turn away when somebody, your own flesh, your own flesh and blood, someone in your own household or your community is in need. Don't hide yourself from them. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. God is starting to describe for his people what true religion is, the kind of religion that he wants from them. It has a purpose. And it is to find the quartet of the vulnerable in society. The quartet of the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the oppressed. The quartet of the vulnerable that exists in any society on earth in history. The poor, the afflicted, the widow, and the orphan. Go find them. Go fight for them. Go set them free. Share your bread with them. If you have a loaf of bread in front of you, don't think it pleases me to simply abstain from eating it. The bread will go stale and you will go hungry. Do you want to know what would please me, God says, is to um, fulfill my purposes with that bread, with your resources, to share it with those who need it to open up your resources, your efforts, your endeavors, and to share them with those in need. Do you have the power to let somebody go free? Do you have the power to feed a hungry person, to clothe a naked person, to find somebody in trouble and help them? That's what will please God. That is true religion. It has the purpose of helping those in need of other people in our lives. We look at this loaf of bread as a metaphor. Sometimes we think to ourselves, God doesn't want me to spend any money. I'll please him by not spending it. And God says, I never asked you to do that. What I would want you to do with your resources is to share them with those who need it more than you do. That is true religion. It has a purpose. Now, maybe you're sitting there asking yourself, so... Are we saying then this morning that we should never fast? This might be a little bit confusing because sometimes here from the pulpit we call for a time of prayer and fasting. We know, of course, in the rest of the Bible there are a number of occasions when we are called to fast. But we have to understand the motivation for our fast. It is not simply to please God. We don't abstain from food and drink simply to please God. There's a deeper purpose in fasting. That's another sermon I'm not going to preach this morning. We could go into all of that theology. 
But if you're ever fasting simply to look humble before God or to look humble before your neighbors, that's the wrong motivation. True religion has a purpose, and it is to fight for those who are in trouble, to feed those who are hungry, to find people in our lives who need help, and to help them with our resources. True religion has purpose. And true religion, secondly, brings pleasure. It brings pleasure not just to us, but to God. You want to please God do his true religion. Let's read about it in verses 8 and 9. It says, if you share your resources with the hungry and so forth, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness. Do you want to please God? Do you want to get his attention? When you call out, do you want him to turn and say, I'm right here. Here I am. Now you've got my attention. Then do his true religion of helping those around you. That will please God. Not these inventions we make up, these religious inventions, these practices, these pieties that we think, oh, that will please God. God says, I never asked you to do that. God is pleased with our sacrificial love more than our religious inventions. I remember my mom's first visit to New York City. My mom, Wilma, who grew up She's lived almost her entire life in West Michigan. And I was there the first time she ever came into New York City. I was a student at Princeton in New Jersey, and we took the train in to Midtown. And there we were around all these skyscrapers, the tallest skyscrapers that man had built, at least in New York City. And we took her, you know, to that place you take every tourist from the Midwest, Times Square. And there we were in the middle of Times Square, and I was like, well, Mom, what do you think? And I looked at the look on her face, and she looked totally unimpressed. And she said, you know, I I thought it would be bigger. (laughs) Okay, that was a Saturday. The next day was Sunday, and the reason my parents were in town is because I was an intern at a church in Manhattan, and I had the privilege of preaching that next morning. And I was standing in the pulpit, and I was preaching, and I got to that point in the sermon where I was just explaining the gospel. I was just explaining that God, seated upon his throne, stepped down from his throne, and came all the way, humbled himself all the way to earth, and more than that, died on a cross to set people free. And as I was explaining the gospel, I saw my mom's face right over here in the pew, and she was weeping. Just in being reminded of the gospel... I took her to midtown Manhattan, where the highest heights of human invention stood, and she gave it a meh. (laughs) And the very next day, she heard about the lowest depths of God's sacrificial love, and she wept. That's what moved her. That's what pleases my mom, because she's a godly woman. She's unimpressed with the highest of human inventions. What moves her is sacrificial love. It's the same with our God. 
Do you want to move God's heart? Do you want to put tears on his face? Do you want to get his attention? Do you want to please him? Don't invent some new religious practice. Do sacrificial love. Lay down your life for the people around you. Share your resources with the hungry. Let the prisoners go free in your life. That's what will impress our God. True religion has purpose. It has pleasure, which mostly belongs to God. And true religion comes with a promise. It comes with a promise. Basically, the promise is that all the things that are broken in our world, broken by sin, will become whole if God's people practice true religion, not false religion, which is pointless, but true religion with its purpose, which brings pleasure to God. It comes with a promise. Let's read about it in verses 10 through 12. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. This is the promise. And make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Now, I can almost see these verses stitched on a decorative pillow and placed as a decoration on the couch in your living room. Some of us have things like that in our home. God's promises are so wonderful, aren't they? You shall be called a repairer of the breach. God shall make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water. I can see it on a decorative pillow or on a plaque on your wall. We love the promises of God. But what we find in Isaiah 58 is that this promise of this garden-like reality where all the broken things in the world are made whole comes as a result of practicing true religion that has purpose and pleasure where we lay down our lives for the folks around us. Then we will experience the promise of this garden-like reality where the broken things are made whole. Now I want to show you something deeper in this. The reality of God's promise goes against what our instincts tell us. I want you to look at this with me. This is really amazing. God goes a step deeper. He says in verse 10, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. In the first part of the chapter, he encourages us, he invites us to pour out our resources for the others. That loaf of bread. But now God goes a step deeper with our faith and he says, I don't want you just to pour out your resources for those around you. I want you to pour out your very selves for the hungry by satisfying the desire of the afflicted. If you pour out yourself for the hungry. And then look what happens in the very next verse. God will satisfy your desire in the scorched place. This is counterinstinctual to us. We think because of our sinful nature that if we want our desires satisfied, we have to go satisfy them ourselves through the pursuit of pleasure. 
God says, if you pour yourself out, not seek your own self-pleasure and your own self-advancement, if you pour yourself out, if you lay down your life for others, look what will come in return. God will satisfy your desires in the scorched places. That's a promise, you see? It's trusting that God knows what our desires are and how they ought to be satisfied better than we do. We often hear when we're on the airplane, you got to put the oxygen mask on first. I hear this a lot. People spiritualize that. They say, I really have to look out for myself first, then I can take care of those around me. It's actually not the way the Bible describes it. The Christian life, according to Eugene Peterson, can be summed up in one phrase, learning how to die. We lay down our lives for those around us. When we do that, when we pour ourselves out, then God will supply our desires and satisfy our hearts better than we could if we pursued our own satisfaction all the time. False religion is pointless. True religion has purpose, has pleasure, and has promised. This chapter, Isaiah 58, it gets me every time. It hits me square between the eyes. It can be read, and it often is, as a prescription. A prescription for us. Stop doing false piety. Start doing God's true religion. It is a prescription for us, but firstly, it is a description. It's a prescription for us, but it's a description of Jesus and what he has done for us. This is a description of what Jesus has done. We read the word poor, we read the word naked and homeless and hungry, and we think of those people out there that we need to help. But spiritually speaking, that's talking about us. And Jesus is the one. He, nothing he did in his life was pointless. He only did what the Father asked him to. His purpose was to lay down his life for us, to pour himself out for us, that we might be spiritually fed. So the good news is that if we ever fail to take our prescription, if we ever fail to do the words that we're instructed to do here in Isaiah 58, take rest, take comfort in knowing that Jesus has done it for us. He is the one who embodies true religion, and he actually is our motivation for why we ought to go out and help those in the world, to share our bread to share our resources, to fight for the afflicted because that's what he's done for us. He saved us from the oppression of our sin. Let's keep our eyes fixed on him, not looking to false religion, false piety, which is pointless, but true religion, which has purpose, pleasure, and the promise of God. Amen.